Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. This is Inspiring Women, and I am Lori McGraw, and today I'm speaking with Alice Benjamin. Now, you know that name because you probably know the name of Nurse Alice, and Nurse Alice is a clinical nurse specialist and medical correspondent. She's been in nursing as a practicing nurse for over 23 years. She also is the medical correspondent for nurse.org. She has the very popular podcast, Ask Nurse Alice. She has become an outspoken advocate for health health equity and the issues of systemic racism in medicine. And Alice, I am delighted to be speaking to you this morning. Thank you so much, Lori, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. Well, I'm talking to you on a really difficult day. We're all sort of reeling from the weekend news of the Buffalo race motivated shootings. And so I, I want to not necessarily start with such a heavy topic, but I really wanted to start with how are you doing today? You know, it's a rough day coming off of a weekend like that when you see uh, such a horrific event, you know, images and deaths. And it's just, just a disheartening experience to be reminded of how racism still exists in our, our country today. Sometimes you think we've made strides in certain areas. And then in other areas, we see, you know, failures like this. And so it's hard, um, it, but it is something where um, it also awakens us to remind us of how pervasive the problem is and that we still have a lot of work to do. And um, so, so much. It is such a stark reminder. It's horrific. And as you know, I, I want to talk about this because you are not just an advocate, you're an outspoken leader to shine lights on these topics. And just as we, I feel like we might be, you know, have some things to be optimistic about um, these stark, amazing difficult, terrible reminders um, only show that I, I, I don't think so. But maybe, you know, uh, Nurse Alice, can I call you, what, should I call you Alice or Nurse Alice? What, what should I Either one you? is fine. Either one is fine. <laughs> All right. I'll just use Alice for now. But Alice, why don't we just start in this conversation? So day to day as a um, speaker, as a nurse, what do you do in your day to day? Oh gosh, that's an interesting question because I don't know that any two days are really the same. That is a good thing. I I believe it is. Um, you know, as a as a healthcare provider, you know, there's usually work. There's a, there's my calling to take care of patients. You know, see them in the hospital. Sometimes it's phone calls, follow ups, and things like that. But I'm also a mother, so I have young ones that I take care of. Um, and then I also have to be reminded of to not forget to take care of myself. And then I have this passion of this drive to kind of take care of the community. I don't know what this is. I'm like the mother of all in a sense. I definitely like to keep my finger on the pulse is kind of what I've been told that I do. But one thing that I that I do know in, in all of those things that I've just mentioned is um, it really boils down to caring and want, wanting to see the best for people. 
And you've been a nurse and an in nursing practice for over 23 years. And that path to, you, um, you know, mom being a nurse, an educator, also an author, podcaster, an influencer, I would call you somebody who has looked to in a correspondent on many different newscasts. Give us sort of the journey. How did you get there starting off in the nursing profession, but then becoming the educator and influencer that you are today? So I have been a nurse collectively for 25 years now. Um, doesn't feel like it though, but I originally didn't want to become a nurse. I was, you know, I wanted to be an accountant. That's what I thought. Um, but then my father, um, who was retired military, had high blood pressure, heart disease, which later he had strokes, um, had developed heart failure and had heart attacks and things like that. And um, my mother, not many people know this about me, but I was actually born overseas in the Philippines. I'm a a military brat. And so my mother's Filipino, English was her second language. And then I had my dad, a black gentleman from the South. And here he is retired in San Diego. And my mom, again, English is second uh, language. And so my dad starts, to, his health starts to fail. And so as the eldest sibling, I step up and I'm helping to take care of my father. And, you know, also my younger sibling as my mom goes to work and things like that. And um, I just remember this very roller coaster ride of an experience with being there for my dad and then kind of somewhat being thrusted in an adult role because I'm translating for my mother here and um, I see things that even it even myself as a as a adolescent knew that this wasn't right and this didn't make sense as part of my dad's health care and so my dad's in and out the hospital I'm helping to take care of him and you know my mom helping her to understand what's going on and long story short, my dad ultimately died of a massive heart attack at a small community hospital, had insurance, retired serviceman. So that wasn't an issue, but it was the quality of care that he'd received. And some of what, you know, hindsight's always 2020, but what I see now were results of racism, implicit bias, just sloppy practice, basically, from providers in this small community hospital. And so it was during that latter part of the journey before my dad died, he said, you know, Alice, you're going to make a great nurse. And here I am thinking like, I want to be an accountant, but <laughs> I had drawn this interest in my dad and what was happening. Of course, and, you know, it's family, but in witnessing other, it became, I became hyper vigilant of other people around me and looking at these things. And I had decided because I had a, I was dis yeah, disgusted with some of the care that my dad had received that I set out to become the best cardiac nurse in the world and that I would help other people in this situation. So I started to, I continued my journey to become a nurse and concurrently became an ambassador and eventually spokesperson for the American Heart Association. And I began to champion messages in the community um, so people didn't have to come to the hospital. My goal was I'm going to work on this preventative stuff so they don't have to be here and go through the things my dad and my family went through. And it was in that journey that my community outreach and education, because I was able to connect with people so well in the community, someone from American Heart Association's PR team saw me and said, hey, Alice, you seem to be pretty good with the people and, you know, and explaining very complex things. You mind coming on the radio and talking about how to be heart healthy during the holidays? I said, sure. I did that. And then I came back for another, I was invited back to do another piece on stroke. And then next thing you know, American Heart Association is asking me to do other press for them around cardiovascular health. 
And then the producer at the radio station invited me back to talk about other health issues. And then it kind of spread like wildfire fire. I really had no intention of going into media, but this radio turned into blogging, coming on other radio shows. It turned into TV invites. And next thing you know, I'm on television talking about all these different health issues. And everyone kept asking me, how did you, how did you do this? I'm like, I don't know. This is, this was faith, I guess, because to me, I was doing patient education and it was coming from a very sincere and passionate place. And it was just an opportunity, opportunity for me to talk to people before they become my patients. Well, it's an incredible journey. And so much of the opportunity comes from scenes to come from that authentic voice. Now, so many caregivers, professionals um, in the area of medicine, they go into that area from sort of a, you know, a story and impactful thing that hit their lives, either personally or in their um, family. So Alice, to hear the story of your father, um, that is a uh, I would just say a heartbreaking story. I have to say I'm a little choked up here just to hear that, you know, not only was it a care journey that ended um, in such a difficult way, but that the care that was delivered had implicit bias and racism associated with that. And um, so I just, I, I, I appreciate you sharing that difficult story and, um, let me let me just try and sort of dig into this. I don't want to. I, I, I'm feeling very heavy listening to you, but I know that you have messages um, to share. At, at what point during the journey and sort of like you know becoming an educator, becoming a face that people were familiar with? At what point did you start to become known as more the household name of Nurse Alice? I you know that's something that um, I just. I don't know where that really came from per se. I just remember being out in community events and, you know, after engaging with people and on a very sincere level, I mean, using, I mean, I, I care, I just care. So that's the bottom line. So they, they knew that I was authentic. I was approachable. I used health literacy. I was, you know, able to meet people where they were. I wasn't intimidating. Um, and I think just having that approachability and not being bothered or upset, or like I'm too busy to explain something twice or three times or even four times to someone. I think just people felt welcome and at ease. And that kind of coined me the term, you know, America's favorite nurse. It kind of started like, oh, you're my favorite nurse, but you're America's favorite nurse. And so I, you know, I, I was really, I was really honored to hear that and to hear people still say that it really you know, it's, it's not for glory, it's not for fame, it's not for money, but it really kind of brings me a peace to know that, you know what, you have someone that you trust that you'll, you'll go to to ask questions. You have someone that you'll trust where you'll be honest with what you ate or what activities you were doing, what you weren't doing, if you took your meds, didn't take your meds. Like, I, that's really what I want at the end of the day, for people to feel comfortable with me as a provider. Now, mind you, I'm not everyone's provider just because I come on television and radio, but I, I like, I like to be kind of a shining light and to kind of help empower people so they can have conversations with their providers. 
Well, creating that trust, I mean, first of all, nurses as a profession is one of the most trusted areas of medicine that there is today. And this is pretty consistent um, in the polling over many years. But you also know, certainly during the course of this pandemic, that the level of misinformation that is being delivered and accepted out there um, by the public is rampant. So how, how do you go about combating that misinformation? And do you think just based on sort of, you know, what you're doing with your social presence is important for nurses and physicians to have social presence. Is that sort of like the new normal for the medical professions? You know, I think having a social platform is important. Now I know it's, you know, when it first came on the scene, it's social. So, you know, everyone's posting their family and just kind of, you know, personal things. And then people have started to, you know, even companies, they use it as business. They use it as a way to promote convey information. And we know that, you know, media is very powerful. Sound bites are very powerful. Images, so powerful. And it's another avenue in which we can educate the public about important issues and get information out there quickly. Um, during the pandemic, where there was a lot of misinformation and disinformation going around, um, you know, news stations couldn't keep up with what was happening on social media. And I think that was a, a very pivotal point where everyone learned that, you know, while media and being on television and radio are important, you know, not everyone pays for cable, not everyone is necessarily listening to the radio, um, but, um, you know, so many people have access to a phone or a computer or an iPad these days. It's kind of become the norm um, in today's society, technology. And, you know, not everyone's paying for cable and those other things. So you can you know, go to the internet and see what's going on so quickly. You sign up for a social media account, which is basically free. You just need a device and access to an internet and you have access to so much knowledge. So I know working, I'm a medical contributor for NBC4 and we did a lot of st um, stuff on television, almost nearly every day, multiple times a day during the pandemic, I was talking about the latest and greatest, what was happening with, you know, from early on in COVID to, you know, to when testing and vaccines and adverse events were happening, talking about these things. And a lot of the things that we did on air, we had to also put online and replicate and also create online forums to get people talking. Because the one thing about television, it's unidirectional. I'm talking to you, but on social media, now we can have a conversation. And so I think in the conversations that were happening on the internet, at least many of those that I was included in, and actually more some that I observed, you know, there were very some combative arguments, some some wild theories about COVID not being real and, you know, ivermectin and all different types of things that people were doing. And, you know, it was a challenge to keep up with all of that. And so the approach that I took and the approach that the networks and the groups that I was affiliated with is, you know, we can't start pick fights with everyone that's online telling everyone to you know the wrong information we can report them to the proper authorities but what that means is we have to even we have to flood the market we have to reach the people we have to engage invite people to forums conversations you know use cultural and linguistically um, competent approaches to get information to the different groups different um, outlets because one particular outlet may not even though they're a news station not everyone was listening to that station. And, you know, there's a lot of mistrust um, when it came to the news and healthcare. So we had to be very creative with 
how we got information, especially to vulnerable groups who, who don't trust either media or healthcare. So let's move, let's move to those vulnerable groups. Let's move to um, the health equity sort of questions, as well as the pervasive, you know, systemic racism that still exists in um, healthcare. So you were, and and your career, you've broken many barriers in terms of, you know, being the first African-American board director of the California Nurses Association and other things. So you know that there are barriers to be broken and you have been an advocate and an outspoken um, uh, leader in the area of health health equity and these types of uh, systemic issues in healthcare long before the pandemic hit. So I guess it started with your father experience in terms of caring for him. But when you started talking about these things and starting to put a light on these things before they became, I would say, in the public awareness as it is today, were people listening? Um, are they listening now? I'd just like to get your perspective on that. You know, I think more people are listening and that's that's good, but I don't think enough are listening or perhaps the message, they've heard the message, but it's not permeated um, them enough to actually create the change we really need to see from everyone in our nation. You know, the the issue of, race. We've seen a lot of things from George Floyd to Trayvon Martin. We've seen things happen in society with law enforcement and these injustices. But I think sometimes people, I don't know if they isolate or maybe they're, they lack the awareness of how pervasive racism can be in their own circles, because many people will say, you know, I'm not racist. And while I believe, uh, you know, I believe, I don't believe everyone is racist. No, I don't. Because I think a lot of times people associate racism with just how one treats one another. And while that has been the most obvious sign of racism to many people, what I think people don't understand is that even though if you are not racist today, you have still benefited from the acts of racism that occurred in the past. And while you are trying to maintain your wealth, education, knowledge, and current living lifestyle of living, understand that that was built on this, the acts of racism and that there are several people who've been left behind because of racism who can't even catch up. So it becomes a story of um, inequity because I think everyone's like, oh, equality exists. Everyone has access to, you know, to this or to that. Yeah, they may not, they may have access now, but inequity is the issue of bringing everyone to the same starting point. And I think that's where, you know, people have used those, those two words interchangeably, but equity and equality are two different things. And what my, one of my biggest charges right now is to raise awareness with inequities, um, especially as they relate to racism. Well, maybe let's start with the issue of trust, okay? As an educator who is out there speaking with, you know, all people, but in particular with um, attention to vulnerable communities, let, let's just talk about like how systemic racism has resulted in trust issues. Maybe if you could explain that a little bit. I, you know, historically, you know, I, I think everyone is aware of the Tuskegee experiments. And I think that that's a, you know, a monumental tragedy that happened in healthcare where where blacks were um part of a study unvol- you know unbeknownst to them 
and where um, treatment was withheld for their syphilis because white researchers wanted to know how syphilis plays out in the human body. So that's one study that everyone's very familiar with. That's just one. There are several issues of why there's mistrust. And some of our very large known academic institutions today, historically in the past, when there were no cadavers, they would go to slave graves and take the remains of slaves and study on, you know, do their, their studies. There's, you know, there's so many tragedies in healthcare. And some of these, I mean, not even so long ago in other countries, you know, there have been stories of some of our major pharmaceutical companies going to third world countries and experimenting on vulnerable people. Um, there have, and you know, those, there are those experiences, but then I think there's what also contributes to mistrust is even recent experiences. I think some of the recent healthcare experiences that people have, they don't feel like their provider listens to them. You know, they're telling them to, you know, do A, B, C, and D without consideration for the person's resources. Um, perhaps, because I hear this word a lot, you know, Mr. Jones was non-compliant with his medications. Well, did you, did you realize that Mr. Jones may, I don't use the word non-compliant, I use non-adherent because they couldn't adhere to the plan, but it could have been, he didn't have any money, his insurance lapsed, he didn't have transportation, um, he was too sick to go. So I don't think those things are investigated enough. And, you know, that's the whole realm of social um, determinants of health, because quite honestly, what happens in the healthcare, with, in the healthcare provider's office and in the hospital is only 20% of really why someone's health is the way it is. It's the other 80% has to do with your environment, the food you have access to, you know, those things that happen in society that aren't covered by our healthcare insurance, if someone even has healthcare insurance. So to kind of, those are some of the things that contribute to mistrust. People don't feel understood. They don't feel listened to. And, you know, the interventions and treatments that they're being provided really don't seem applicable or doable in their lives. And people can feel very frustrated with it. And I think that has a lot to do with um, the mistrust in the community and also contributes to the inequity and, you know, health disparities that we're seeing. And I think the social determinants of health, I like I, I really do appreciate the tremendous new focus on this area because so much of you know people's health has you know nothing to do with that 20% of in the actual clinic offices and everything else, but in where you're living, whether you have access to you know financial resources, housing, et cetera. But with such a broad and large um, topic for the area that you know, Alice, where do you think we can make progress? today? Where do you think we need to double down on today? Where there's a lot of work on education that you're doing, but where should we feel like we should and can be making progress? You know, I think education is very important and it definitely starts with education, but not just education to the community, but education to um, the healthcare community, education to the insurance companies and the people that are the gatekeepers of whether someone has access or not, you know, because people can be as informed as, as much as they want, but if they don't have access to something, then it's like it's hitting a glass ceiling. And so when I talk about education with the community, I always you know, raise awareness to very important issues. And I like to equip people with information that they should know about particular health issues and what they should be looking for, what, should they, what they should be seeking and the conversation that they should be having with their provider. Now, the other part of it that kind of 
gets in the way with it, obviously, is insurance companies. And I think so much of the healthcare dollar is spent reactively once someone is sick versus the prevention. So I really would like to see in the future a swing the pendulum to some of these health benefits be able and applicable to provide safe housing, fresh water, fresh fruits and vegetables, and those type of things. Like your health spending plan should be used, be able to be used for, to buy fresh fruits and vegetables and healthy foods. It shouldn't just be for the actual doctor's visit or those copay, you know, things like that. So I'd like to see the healthcare dollars spent more intentionally on things that can help us focus on prevention and those those most dire needs in the, in the moment. But I also want to educate the healthcare community because I think to bring this back to kind of mistrust and um, inequity where healthcare providers can improve upon. And what I have started to really have conversations with my colleagues is while someone will say, I'm not a racist provider, I treat everyone equally. Remember equality and inequity are two different things. And some of the things that I you know share with my colleagues that many of them are in disbelief is, Think of our, our healthcare system. It is built, there is system, systemic racism built in our healthcare system. And people, they kind of get puzzled because they'll say, well, I don't treat people that way. It's not necessarily about how you're treating the patient that's before you, but the system, the system is flawed. So I'll take some, provide some examples really quickly. We talk about the HPV vaccine that's used to prevent you know, cervical cancer in women. Well, did you know that the HPV vaccine is the actual two strains that are covered in that vaccine? that vaccine is only half as likely to be, those two, the strains that are in the HPV vaccine are half as likely to be found in African-American women versus white women. So it is a medicine that is really better suited and more protective of white women than it is black women. When we look at things like the glomerular filtration rate, I don't know that people have been really cognizant to even ask, why is there an African-American and a non-African-American GFR? Well, historically, Researchers have said African-Americans are fine with higher levels of creatinine. Well, when that happens, there's, they don't qualify for certain treatments. They don't qualify for dialysis as soon. They don't qualify for a kidney transplant as, as soon as um, our white counterparts. And when they do, they have worse outcomes because they've been allowed to live with you know, kidney disease for so much longer. I mean, there are other things when it comes to things like um, osteoporosis. Um, there are five additional risk score points for non-Black patients, which means Black patients are less likely to be further assessed for risk factor. I mean, there are, I mean, these are just a, a couple of examples. I mean, even- A couple of examples of what are, what are seemingly an endless array of examples. And, and I, I think we could just, you know, talk for a long time about this. And, um, you know, Alice, I will just say that your, um, your passion and commitment for putting a spotlight on these issues for educational purposes, for not just, you know, what can an individual do, but the systemic spotlight um, that's needed is, um, it's admirable and inspiring to hear. And I really appreciate you sharing those stories. As we close out on this inspiring women conversation, I would just love to get from you sort of like your last closing advice for other women who are aspiring themselves to make a difference, make an impact, particularly in the area of medicine. Oh gosh, that's a good question. So, you know, it, it can be very daunting. You can want to give up. You can feel very frustrated, but every day I wake up newly charged and inspired because I can't give up. I, you cannot give up because when we give up, we lose hope. And when we lose hope, what do we have? And so I think that's very important 
um, especially as women, many of us leading our, our homes, you know, we're leading teams at work, we're leading our community and, you know, we are responsible for continuing the human race. And so all things come from us. And so I think that hope can also come from us. And so I just want to encourage women, despite everything that's going on, even with our reproductive rights on the line, we cannot give up the fight. We cannot. Um, and so I just want to encourage everyone that I know it's one day at a time, even if you don't, if, even if we, we don't win the battle today, there's still tomorrow. Well, thank you so much for those great comments. We've been talking on Inspiring Women with Alice Benjamin, also known as Nurse Alice. And Alice, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.